Hi, everybody. Welcome to Podcast of Lady on Fire, where we explore the filmmaking themes and community involved in Celine Siama's portrait of a lady on fire. We are your hosts. I'm Laurel Hachinova. And I'm Audrey Nee. A couple of quick disclaimers before we jump in. Neither of us speaks French. Uh, apologies in advance for our pronunciation. Also, we are at this point assuming that you've watched the movie because if you haven't, this is going to have a bunch of spoilers. So heads up. And today we have not one, but two special guests Ooh. with us. We have Alex Heaney, founder and editor-in-chief, and Orla Smith, executive editor of Seventh Row, which is a Canadian not-for-profit online publication and publishing house dedicated to helping you think deeply about film. They are also co-authors and editors of the first book ever published dedicated to Celine's filmography. It's called Portraits of Resistance, the Cinema of Celine Siama. And just a quick shout out to my friend Dor, who I think I've mentioned in like every episode, who uh, <laughs> introduced us to Alex. So thanks, Dor. Thanks, Dor. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining yeah, thank us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to talk. Could you tell us a little bit about Seventh Row? So yeah, Seventh Row, we're a Canadian publication. Our goal is basically to focus on under-the-radar films. So we want to really spotlight films that we think are really, really great and worth thinking about and talking about that aren't necessarily going to get that attention elsewhere. Our theory is that when we go to festivals is to kind of watch as much as we can that doesn't have distribution. Mm. I think in other publications, you might see sort of like short 200-word capsule reviews of those films if you're lucky. But we try to like do very in-depth interviews or analyses of them. So like films that are tiny get the same kind of care and attention that films that are big do. That's really lovely, yeah. And Seventh Road was founded in 2013, was it, I think? Yeah, I guess technically 2013. It's This website has been around since 2006 because it oh. used to just be where I published a second version, like a version of everything that I had published in other publications when I was writing for student media and undergrad and grad school. And then in 2013, it became all original content and we kind of like scrubbed all the stuff that was duplicates of other publications. Oh, cool. I also love the origin of the name. Could you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. And this is also a thing that dates back to like 2006. But it basically comes from where my favorite place to sit was in Toronto cinemas. And in 2006, <laughs> that was the seventh row. I don't know if that's like still totally true <laughs> because things have changed. But I often do like find myself sitting in the cinema. I go, oh, I'm look, I'm in the seventh row. Aww. Me too. Me too. By the way, I take no credit for any of this because I joined in like 2017. I think. think so. Yeah, I started writing Seventh Row in 2017. And then later that year, I was doing editorial work. And now it's kind of like me and Alex running the show with help from some other very cool people. Yeah. And how did you two meet each other? <laughs> well, I am, if you can tell, not Canadian. But I pitched to the website because I just liked the stuff on there. And I was kind of new to film journalism. And I really enjoyed writing for Seventh Row. And then me and Alex just kind of became Twitter friends. And then when she wasn't getting any sleep because she was running the website by herself, she was like, hey, do you want to help? And I was like, yes. And we only met in person for the first time last year because I came to TIFF. Oh, cool. Yeah, so we are completely online correspondents. Oh, same as us, too. We haven't met in real life either. <laughs> Ever. Even though you guys are really close by. Yeah, we live like a bridge away right yeah yeah we were instagram friends somehow we're still not sure how that happened we were following each other on instagram for a while so we sort of knew each other 
pre-portrait, but then this kind of brought us together to start the podcast. So we, yeah, we've never met in person. And by that time, it was lockdown, so... Yeah, yeah, I assume post coronavirus, yeah. going to mean <laughs> in a year or two, where <laughs> yeah. you can like wave at each other from across the bridge. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the other part of our origin story is that I'm an engineer by training, and so that's kind of where this very technical approach to film comes from. So we're really interested in all of the technique behind film, whether that's like cinematography or sound or blocking. And that's a big part of how we approach analysis and also what we talk to filmmakers about. And I mean, that being said, our goal is to make that totally accessible to people who know nothing about any of these things, but also not to talk down to people who are already Mm. like cinematographers themselves say. And I guess my training too as an engineer is in systems engineering and like supply chain thinking. So I'm very used to sort of thinking about all the different stakeholders and how they interact with each other and collaborate or fail to collaborate and how all of those links in the system work. And that's kind of where we get our approach for talking to multiple people from the filmmaking team to try and understand how those pieces fit together and how they collaborate. That's super cool. That's the first time I've heard an analogy between systems engineering and Mm -hmm. film making, so (laughs) pretty impressive. Yeah, well done. (laughs) Makes sense, though. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And our books? Yeah, yeah. You can do that. Yeah, sure. Well, we kind of like, I think it was 2018 when we started this. We started repackaging some of our content into ebooks. We used to do like special issues, which would be a week dedicated to articles on a certain film. So we'd do a bunch of essays or we'd interview the director and a bunch of the people who worked on the film. So we love to kind of like interview, say, cinematographers, sound designers, costume designers, production designers who all worked on the same film. And we find it kind of gives you a clearer idea of how a director works than just talking to the director. And we took these in 2018 and we started repackaging them into ebooks. And then in 2019, that became kind of like an all original effort. So now all our books are kind of like some repurposed content occasionally. Like for us, I am a book. There's an interview we did in 2015 about girlhood. But other than that, it's all kind of original stuff for the books. And we publish one every three months about like a filmmaker or a topic so we've done a one on Joanna Hogg we're doing one sooner on Kelly Reichardt we did one on feminist horror last year and just a whole bunch of stuff that's great were you first aware of Siyama's work with Tomboy it sounds like well it's different for both of us okay I think the first film of hers that I saw was either Girlhood or Tomboy and I think it would have been about 2015 when Girlhood came out so this is like before pre-seventh row for me I became a fan of hers because I liked those two films. Um, Meanwhile, Alex, I think you saw Water Lilies when it came out, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't get it. I don't think it even got a theatrical release in Canada, but I saw it at the French Film Festival here. And that would have been in like 2007, I think. Mm -hmm. And I just fell in love with it. And I loved the film so much that when Tomboy came out, I was so excited to see her next film. And then I loved that. And so I've just been a fan pretty much ever since Water Lilies and rushed out to see all of her films. Oh, great. Yeah. I was at the world premiere of Girlhood at Cannes. Oh, wow. Whoa, that's great. And then you are kind of our seventh row journey with Celine Sayama started when you interviewed her at Sundance in 2016, it would have been. I want to wait, 2015? No, I think you're right, 2015. Yeah, so when Girlhood played at Sundance, I interviewed Celine there, and that was, you know, we only, we talked to her like half an hour, but it totally changed how I thought about filmmaking. I remember she said to me that cinema is the only art form ever where you can share another person's loneliness. 
And I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's like, just put that on a t-shirt. That's a great quote. Uh, right. <laughs> she just drops that casually. It's great. Yeah, exactly. She just dropped that. I was like, okay, that's <laughs> like um, brilliant. And so then I asked her, you know, how do you show another person's loneliness? And I said, you know, I imagine that's kind of like framing. And then she mm. said, and sound. And I was like, sound? Mm. Sound? How do you do that with sound? Um, and she's telling me about, she's thinking about like the sound of a fridge or the sound of a neon light. And that just totally changed. I'd never really thought about sound in character dramas. Mm-hmm. Well, I just reread the interview and what's really interesting is that she kind of talks about how the sound in the film is like not at all realistic or naturalistic. Mm. And she's like, I don't even try to kind of create that. I don't think about like whether there's a, a neighbor who you can hear through the wall. It's about using sound to create like an emotional landscape for the character. Wow, that's so powerful and so evocative. Like when you mentioned the neon light sound in the fridge, I heard it in my head and it got Mm -hmm. just like a little sad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you feel lonely? I do. I feel very lonely now. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Then I started asking other filmmakers about their sound. So like I ended up asking Joshua Oppenheimer about his sound and the look of silence. I don't know why people didn't ask him that. Like it's in the title. The look of silence. Yeah. (laughs) And he's telling me that it's, you know, a magic realist soundscape. And I was like, what? Okay. Never would have thought of that. We ask every director about sound now, basically. And it's just so cool because no one asks them about sound, but they're always so excited to talk about sound. Because they're like, no one asked me that, but I think about, like, you have to put so much thought into it. Because if you think about it, like, all sound in film is constructed. Right, right. So much of the onset sound isn't really usable. So you're basically, like, creating sound and then you have to kind of choose whether it's realistic or subjective. And there's just so much that goes into it and it's fascinating. I think most people, like, most casual filmgoers don't really realize that either, you know. I went to Universal Studios Hollywood once, right? And one of the things that you can do is sit in an audience and they walk you through different parts of filmmaking and one of the things was being a foley artist right and so they had two members of the audience come up and had them watch a scene and then try to recreate the sounds of the scene and so they had then that audience made soundtrack played against the video and it was terrible and it was so it was so terrible that it was comedic you know because if you're not a professional sound designer or sound editor you don't know what things should sound like and everyone sort of I assumed until I started reading into films more that all this stuff is just recorded live and it's not you know like the fireplace sounds were all edited in and you know for portrait they were amplified in certain scenes and faded away in certain scenes and so much goes into it it's not just oh yeah have a mic running near the fire you know it's it's a lot more complicated than that yeah and there was this canadian film that me and alex love from last year that we named the best film of last year one above portrait called mouthpiece and in alex's interview with the the director and the two writers there was this really interesting anecdote where they were talking about the very end of the film which is this kind of like montage thing and they said they everyone always cried at the end when they would watch cuts and then there was one time where no one cried and they were like wait what's gone wrong like we can't tell what's different but like something is different because it's not affecting us in the same way that it usually is and it's basically they had just slightly turned down the sound oh. so that the level of dialogue that you could hear was like slightly different and the music and the mixing of it was slightly different and it changed the entire like emotional impact of that scene and I think it just sound is so it works on you in such a subconscious way but it's so powerful 
Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, and that's something in that interview too where you're talking to the actresses and director of Mouthpiece. They were also talking about breathing, which is something that Celine talks about with Portrait and how she choreographed when they were allowed to breathe. But in Mouthpiece, they were talking about how it's like completely different if in a scene if you cut on a breath in versus on a breath out. Mm-hmm. Just like completely changes the emotional context of the scene. Yeah, that blew my mind when I read that Celine had, for the final scene especially, right, where Eloise is watching the symphony and she cuts on an inhale, right? And it just, Mm. I I feel like I inhale at the same time whenever I watch that scene. I guess we haven't even gotten to portrait in our story. (laughs) 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 Oh, we'll get (laughs) there. I think basically it was that we kind of knew in January of last year that Portrait was going to be a film that would be out this year. We knew Celine Sayama was going to have a new film out. And we were like, okay, we're doing a book on her. Absolutely. Then kind of May came around and everyone loved it. And we were like, yeah, obviously we're doing the book. <laughs> and then we both got to see it in September at TIFF. And we were both there and we went to the big glitzy screening. Obviously, we both loved it. Then you interviewed her and Adele the next day, right? Yeah, and that was quite exciting because, like, it's kind of a funny story because she had just done this hour-long interview that really pissed her off. Oh, wow. So when I showed up, they were like, we're really sorry, Celine needs to go outside to smoke. She's, like, really having a day. And then they're like, oh, we're going to cut the interview short. It's going to be, like, 20 minutes instead of 30 minutes. And I'm like, Uh, yeah. okay, okay. (laughs) Uh, Oh, God, she's in a bad mood. Okay. But, like, she came back and then it turned around because, you know, she got excited with the stuff that we were talking about. I wasn't pissing her off with my questions. (laughs) Yeah. And then at the end of the interview, I told her, you know, we're planning on making a book on Portrait and it's going to come out when the film comes out and we want to talk to you some more and would you be open to that and she's like who's we and i said <laughs> seventh row and she says hey wait a second seventh row you're alex oh my god we met at sundance a few years ago we had a moment and i was like oh my god how do you remember me <laughs> so like great i get why i remember you because i love you but <laughs> it was incredible. 20 minutes five years ago wow. so that was really exciting oh that's so good i mean that's the thing like if you ask directors about stuff like sound then they remember you because they're like you're <laughs> yes. the person that let me talk about that thing <laughs> yeah right yeah but then adele was like i mean i wasn't there but reading the interview afterwards it can be really hard to get a good interview of an actor yes <laughs> they just aren't so used to having to like verbalize what they're mm-hmm. doing yeah a lot of it's instinctual yeah like directors they have to kind of be like ex- constantly be explaining why they're making decisions and thinking through things and acting can be more spontaneous so it can be hard to get like specific stuff we like to get technical stuff out of people but she is just so kind of like eloquent about her craft oh, yeah. and very specific and it's definitely one of the best interviews with an actor we've done and she's just like so fantastic yeah she's amazing and this was you know we did the interview in English so it's her second language too and I was just kind of sitting there like wow you're incredibly intelligent and really thoughtful and articulate and this is amazing and yeah she's just really thoughtful about her craft which as Orla said not all actors are but Adele and Noemi are both just two of the most exciting actors that we've talked to Mm, I got to speak to Noemi on the phone a couple months after that and yeah she was pretty much the same it's amazing that they're both just so specifically intelligent and able to kind of explain what they're doing on this other level that a lot of actors just aren't able to kind of verbalize yeah Yeah. like sometimes you ask actors how they prepared and they're just like oh i you know i just read this script (laughs) right yeah (laughs) you're like okay and they're like and then you're like how did you physicalize the performance and they're like oh i put on the costume i just like 
figured it out and then you know they're like well here's how the dress changed how I walked right here's how I thought about the stages of my character's development and, and like that's not typical yeah do you think that's like a characteristic they share with other French actors or it's more specific to them no it's specific to them because I mean a bunch of the actors that we've ended up interviewing like in depth although there are some that you know never made the light of day because they were really bad (laughs) but a lot of the ones that we've talked to are actually incredibly thoughtful and intelligent I guess partly because often you can see actors get interviewed and then you know like I'm just not gonna I don't want to talk to them I talked to Anders Danielson Lee, who's a Norwegian actor who is a medical doctor by day and an actor wow. as a hobby, I guess. <laughs> He's like one of the best actors currently working. Just two low-key professions. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> yeah. And he's like incredibly thoughtful and articulate and intelligent. And Orla, you just interviewed Lily Gladstone for our Kelly Reichardt book. Yeah, she's amazing. She's so cool. And I think what the thing that is specific to her and that we find a lot is that uh, not always, but often you do get better interviews out of theatre actors. That's true. And she's mm-hmm. trained in theatre because if you're trained in theatre, you have to have kind of been through the processes of having to explain your choices and be specific about physical choices and also like in theatre you're rehearsing constantly and you're constantly having to kind of like think about what you're doing Hmm. in a different way than if you're a film actor which is more spontaneous Mm. so with Lily Gladstone that was definitely the case that as a theatre actor and just because she's like incredibly intelligent she gave an amazing interview but I don't think Adele and Naomi have done theatre as far as I'm aware. Adele has done a couple of plays Mm -hmm. but Mostly she hasn't done theater. And that came in like her mid-career, right? Mid to later, more recently, didn't it? Adele's I don't think she started theater in theater. It's more right. recent. She didn't start in theater because her first film was that film where she was sexually assaulted. Yeah, uh, yeah. Before Water Lilies. And that film is horrifying. Don't watch it. She's yeah. like 13 in it and like there's full frontal nudity. And it's re- I was really uncomfortable when I watched it. And then two months later was the, after I'd watched it was when she came out and said that, you know, she was sexually assaulted on the film. And I was like, okay, well, because that film was super creepy the way yeah. it was shot. But Alex, you've watched everything she's been in, right? I have. Do you speak French? Just out of curiosity. I do speak French. Well, actually, I think more things are available here now, yeah. but there were a few films that I had to like rent with a French version only. That mm. makes sense. And then I was just like, okay, well, luckily I speak French, so hopefully they don't say anything too technical. Did she do anything in German? Yeah, she did. She did The Bloom of Yesterday, I think it's mm. what it's called, with Lars Eidinger, which is mostly in German. It's kind of a rom-com about Holocaust researchers. Oh, as you do. fun. As you, yeah. It mostly works, surprisingly. <laughs> what a lot of people don't give her credit for is that she's like an amazing comedic actress. Oh, she's so good. She's made some rom-coms and I think she's like one of the great comedians mm. of our age. If you watch her in interviews with Noemi, I feel like you can see it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I did have a question about Adele's language capabilities. You did her interview in English, right? Yeah. Why the choice to do it in English instead of French? She wanted to do it in English. Like I, You offered, right? Yeah, I offered to do it in French. Like They knew that we were English press, but when I came into the interview, I said, I speak French, so if it's easier for you to talk about your craft in French, then go ahead and we'll just translate it. And she said, no, no, it's fine. I'm used to talking in English. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that level of fluency amazes me because I'm terrible with languages, but it's really incredible. Yeah, to be able to speak in depth on a really complex subject matter in your second language is 
Mm. Yeah, levels above. It's fairly commonplace in Europe. Like mm. everybody in Europe, except in France, speaks perfect <laughs> English. But like in France, and this is a problem not just in film, but people in academia have trouble because academia is all in English. Mm. So people in France are sort of exiled almost from general academia or industry because everything else operates in English. And, you know, I guess because of France's history with England. Oh, right. Yeah. It's like the one country <laughs> where not everybody is dying to learn English. Whereas everywhere else is like, if you're in Germany, you learn German and you learn English and then you learn a third language, mm -hmm. but not in France. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, imagine knowing a third language. I know. <laughs> Everybody in Europe knows at least three. They're like, oh, I only know three languages. I'm working on my fifth. But and I'm like, you're fifth. I was proud that I knew two. Right, right. The Americans are silent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, in America, we barely speak one language so <laughs> yeah. we're gonna ask you one of our i'm gonna say air quotes fun questions uh -huh. which is i'm sure that'll be fun <laughs> what would you say is your favorite scene in portrait of a lady on fire we've been prepared for this moment we have <laughs> uh, well in our book actually in the opening section there is a, a chapter with 10 scene analyses from all of her films and the last four are portrait and I did two, and Alex did two, so we have researched this. <laughs> For me, I would go with, the one I was really dying to write about was the portrait painting scene where Eloise is, like, we're in the same place. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure everyone listening is aware of what scene I'm talking about from just one quote. What I love most about that scene was, is kind of what I love most about the film, which is the way that it plays with, like, the artists and the muse tropes. I wrote about that later in the book in like an essay about water lilies and portrait and how Adele's characters in both are kind of like these objects of desire who are more than just a muse. And then Angelo Moretta, who's an amazing Canadian writer, wrote an essay about this kind of muse idea in portrait as well. So it's a big focus of our book. But this scene, I think, is the first scene where you're really confronted with this idea of this is a film that's really going to disrupt what we think of as a muse and suggest that what might be the muse of the person being painted is actually a collaborator. And what's great about that scene is like Eloise is kind of directing it. It's at first, it's like a shot reverse shot, which is sort of a typical kind of way an artist in a muse might be shot. And then we have her commanding Marianne to come over and it turns it into a two shot. So she's completely in control of that scene, how we're seeing that scene. And it's just this really clever way to both in dialogue and in the way it's shot, talk about the artist and the muse. And the closeness of the framing changes at that point as well, right? Mm. Initially, Marianne is shot more closely and Eloise is at a distance. And then after that conversation, after Marianne comes over and then walks back to the canvas, she's further away, mm. which sort of indicates that the dynamic has shifted mm, yeah and throughout the whole rest of the film as well because it's sort of like that's a real turning point in the film and how like the characters see each other and how we see them i just got goosebumps ah this is great yeah <laughs> it's just so good it's so good so I guess my favorite is the scene that has the one original song for the film, which is mm. Portrait de la Jeune Fille en Feu. So that's where they're at the fireside with this community of women and they're singing a song and clapping together. And that's when Eloise's dress ends up on fire, which then inspires the portrait of the title. Part of what I love about it is something that I love about Celine as a filmmaker, which is that she is so, so wonderful at using movement 
to indicate character and character changes and using movement and song. And in all of her films, there are these amazing scenes that involve no dialogue that are just song and dance that are almost just like a little mini musical almost that are key scenes where, you know, something major shifts between the characters. And this is a scene that kind of gives me goosebumps Mm -hmm. where you see all of these women singing and clapping together and you feel like there's this real community that, that they're part of. And it's this sort of, you know, a matriarchal society that is hidden from us the rest of the time. And the film is such a, everything is so secluded in the film. Marianne has to go on this long boat journey in order to get to the island of Brittany. And then she's, you know, trucking up and you really get the sense that the house where Eloise lives is just cut off from the rest of the world. And this is the first time we get a sense of a larger community and a community of women who are helping each other because that's where Mm -hmm. the maid meets the woman who's going to give her the abortion. And there's the way it cuts back and forth between Marianne looking at Eloise and Eloise looking at Marianne to the point that she doesn't even notice that her dress is on fire is just spellbinding. I could just watch that scene over and over and over and over again. I kind of want to watch the spinoff of Just the Cummings. Yes. <laughs> I know, yeah. What are they doing? You that know. would be great. They should have that TV show. Yeah. <laughs> like a sitcom. <laughs> Alex, I'm curious if you have any thoughts, or actually for both of you, on the moment you're talking about with the singing, how that's recorded in studio, since we've been talking about sound a lot versus the choice to record it on location. I mean, one of the things that Celine told me was that she had that song well before they were making the movie and she was listening to it and listening to it throughout the making of the film. And so she really had absorbed the rhythms of that song. And I think you see that in the way that she, you know, she's choreographing footsteps, which are kind of like not too dissimilar from the syncopated clapping. Mm -hmm. The fact that she had that song to work with already meant that she could really think about how to construct that scene around that song so that it really came to life. And I think she's also like a very meticulous filmmaker. I don't think she doesn't sit there and go, oh, like, make up your lines. And, you know, it's like, don't move. Yeah, right. <laughs> Smile. Breathe now. Stop Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I mean, you know, the actors told us that there was a lot of freedom within that. Just because you have to smile, there's, you know, a million ways to smile. But she's very, very precise. To the extent that there was, like, quite shallow focus in a lot of the film. So if the actors moved a, a, even a tiny bit, they would be out of focus. So they had to be, like, so still. That was due to the definition that they shot in? Was that because it was such high definition? I think that has more to do with the lens. Mm. Probably the lens and the focus they they choose. Yeah, yeah. With shallow focus. I don't think we realized how awkward actors are often posed in Mm. films for that purpose, right? The composition. It's funny because it really depends on the director too. So we're running this lockdown film school right now where we're talking to like a couple of filmmakers in conversation with each other. And last week we talked to these two filmmakers, Stephen Cohn and Ashley McKenzie, who do low budget filmmaking. And Stephen Cohn was telling us, you know, he likes to just let the actors kind of do their thing. And he's telling us that, you know, cinematographers hate him for this. (laughs) Because he's like, how about we just like, you know, and you know, the actor walks over there, the cinematographer's like, we did not light that part of the set. Now people are going to think I don't know how to do my job. (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah. And, you know, like we hear when we did sound, for example, like Joanna Hogg, she gets her actors to improvise dialogue. So every take is different. And then she also has them whisper. So when I was talking to the sound designer on the souvenir, he's kind of like, oh, my God, just to be able to hear their voices is a nightmare because she's shooting from far away. They're talking quietly and every take is different because they're improvising and they're saying different things. Uh. And like, how do you actually get it so that you can get the sound just to hear them talking, which is something, you know, when you talk about sound, we're always like, oh, well, like the sound of the fire, it's so emotional. But it's like, sometimes it's just, how do you hear people or you know how do you see people 
And that's probably why every scene in Portrait feels so perfectly done, even just within that scene, is because everything has been thought through and then also executed so meticulously. You know, Mm -hmm. no improvisation. You stand here, you breathe now, and then you have every scene looks like a painting and comes across emotionally exactly the way that Siyama intended. Yeah, I mean, she's kind of the director who just loves to perfect things because, like Alex said, there are directors we love who are completely different. Like Joanna Hogg, she doesn't even write proper scripts. She writes, like, film outlines. Wow. And Mike Lee, in his rehearsal period, he writes a film with his actors. And there are all these different ways to do it. To, and they can yield great outcomes that are like very different from what she's done. But her film feels incredibly meticulous and perfected while still feeling kind of warm and emotional, which is an amazing balancing act. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would never have known that she choreographed the footsteps if she hadn't told mm-hmm. me. But it, subconsciously, it does have an effect because there's this rhythm that the film builds up incredibly subconsciously but it's a tense film and it has tension in it because of the breathing and because of the footsteps i'm kind of curious how much of that planning lives in her head versus on paper because i heard she doesn't storyboard so is it all in the script probably is it in her brain (laughs) you know alex did we ask her about storyboarding no i didn't ask her about storyboarding we probably got stockholm syndrome by like (laughs) the mike lee book Because when we did a book on Peter Liu and when I interviewed Mike Lee, he was like, yeah, I don't see the point in a storyboard. They wanted me to get a storyboard artist, but if I had one, I would have broken his knees. Oh, wow. (laughs) And then when we talked to everybody who worked with Mike Lee, every single one of them without prompting was like, it would have been really useful to have a storyboard. It would have really come in. We didn't even ask them. They just all opened with, they were just, it was very difficult because we didn't have a storyboard. It would have been really nice to have a storyboard. Yeah. I feel like that probably just got us to no longer ask. (laughs) were you like do you like your knees because you know it's it's storyboards on knees you have to choose yeah Yeah. Uh, it's one or the other sorry i mean she does have all that stuff written into the script i believe yeah it's hard to know because like i know andrew haig who's also really meticulous with blocking he draws little diagrams of the blocking and how people are going to move and he works that out when he does the script and then he picks his location so he makes sure he can do the blocking he wants I don't think Siama works quite like that. I mm. think she is a bit more adaptable to the location. I could be wrong, though, but she hasn't been talking about that. I did come across her saying something about how part of the beauty of film is, just as you said, like adapting to the setting that you end up picking. So the things like the mansion that they ended up shooting in, the color of the walls, right, was already that sort of baby blue-ish. Yeah. And she said, oh, what a wonderful thing. We're just going to go with this but things like that generally. Yeah, it was ironically the least production designed film that she's made. Right. Because all of her other films have, you know, houses or whatever that are created or are were shot in studios. And this one, they just found a great mansion and were like, okay, yeah. we're keeping it. Yeah. Let me know if any of you have heard about this. The fireplace, like they had to build a chimney or something? Oh, what was it? They had to control the fire. Never mind. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm just going to. Let that peter out. I think that's a lot of digital effects, though, because they were deliberately not having fire while they shot so that they could choose when to put it in and when to take it out. Mm-hmm. Wait, what? The fire CGI? <laughs> I mean, it was like a special kind of fire that didn't make noise. And then they added the sound afterwards. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. I think it's because it was a gas fire. Yeah. They had more control over it. Right. There's no actual wood in right. that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. 
Got it. Figured it out. Great. <laughs> Good job, team. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> Should we get into the book? <laughs> sure. So the title of the book is Portraits of Resistance. And I love the title. I think it's very apt. Would you mind explaining where the resistance part of the title comes from? It partly came out of my interviews with Celine. She kept saying, you know, you have to resist. You know, when I talked to her about girlhood, she was saying, this is a story that's about a black girl in a Paris suburb who's lower class. And the cliche would be, you shoot it like social realism with a shaky camera. And she says, you know, I wanted to resist those expectations that I wanted to make a film that was beautiful and colorful and in cinemascope and was incredibly cinematic as opposed to sort of gritty and ugly. Mm -hmm. And then she was using that term resist or resistance when I was talking to her about portrait as well where she's talking about how oh boy now I can't remember do you remember this Orla? The idea of resistance came up in two separate ways it's like the characters are resisting things in the film and then Celine herself is resisting cinematic tropes I think there's she's resisting a lot of period piece cliches in portrait because she was sort of saying that like even though it's a period piece it's like a story that's never been told so it belongs to the present and in all her films it's sort of like an element of resisting what you'd expect in fact even Water Lilies was not completely in keeping with the French cinema that was coming out of young filmmakers at the time because she was inspired by like American high school movies for that <laughs> film and she was kind of mixing like the French approach with that kind of story and then at the same time I think I mean Alex you can probably speak to this better because I think it's the idea of resistance in terms of what the characters are doing is very relevant to your essay about all of Celine's films, it brings them together because the characters find these moments where they can kind of temporarily resist the injustices placed upon them, but then by the end of the film we know that that can't really last. But yeah, you can speak to that. In the book I wrote an essay on all of Sama's films, which was about what I called temporary utopias. Because in her first three films, the characters basically are living in a world where patriarchy is a pretty dominant force. A lot of bad things, maybe not bad things, but it's they're having tough times. And yet within that, they have these brief reprieves where they're happy, where they have this kind of utopia. So in girlhood, they're in a hotel room and they're dancing to Rihanna's diamonds. Actually, a lot of the time this happens through dance. And what's special about Portrait is that the whole film is kind of like this temporary utopia where they're away from men, where they are just together for this one week where, you know, the threat of marriage is there, but it's not they can put it aside for a little bit and they have time to sort of just be themselves in this world. But I think the film itself, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, is an act of resistance in a lot of ways. And the characters themselves do that. You know, the fact that Eloise resists being an object. She mm -hmm. says, no, I'm watching you and I'm going to be part of this creative process. The fact that the film is actually depicts an abortion and mm -hmm. then Eloise wants that put down on paper for posterity because she says we need to bear witness to this and that's a pretty radical act women have been having abortions since you know the dawn of time and yet we act as though this is some sort of 20th century invention right. and so and then the film is itself sort of resisting conventional historical narratives because there were all of these female artists at the time in the 18th century but a lot of their stories have kind of been lost to history they're just sort of coming out now and so even though Marianne isn't based on a real person she's based on a movement of female artists the film is itself saying no let's talk about this part of history we aren't talking about let's look at women's stories and I think the fact that you know, it's interesting that Siyama makes films about, mostly about women, and a lot of the time it's about how they're affected by men and patriarchy, but she's not interested in men. Like, men aren't in the films. 
that's especially true in Portrait, where there's literally no men except the guys <laughs> rowing right. Marianne to Brittany. And then the gallery, right? Right. But, like, even in Water Lilies, where the girls are spend the whole entire film basically trying to do various things in order to be perceived by boys in various ways. There's one boy in it, and he barely has any dialogue. He's mostly seen from afar she's not interested in him. She's interested in his presence and how it affects the girls. And I think that is itself an act of resistance because I think a lot of the time when we think about how do we tell stories about patriarchy, it's you have a guy and he's there and he's being awful and you're like, oh yeah, men are bad, patriarchy. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, but if you want to talk about structural issues, you got to look at the psychological effects it has on the people who are affected by it. And that's really what Siama does in a pretty unconventional way, I think. Mm-hmm. Side note, when my girlfriend and I were watching Water Lilies and it got to that scene where the water polo team is dancing around a keg with underwear on their head. Oh, yeah. We were like, oh, Siama, tell us how you really feel about <laughs> about male presence. <laughs> cool. Noted. The only character, male character, that I think doesn't at some point have something bad about them is Lore's father in tomboy right yeah and his biggest crime is just sort of like letting his wife stomp all over her and trying to push her towards femininity but like even the boyfriend who starts off really lovely in girlhood oh i guess now i'm spoiling everything for you which you told me you didn't want to be spoiled for (laughs) no it's it's fine go ahead i feel like it's been impossible to avoid spoilers given what we're doing it's just that he starts off like very nice and then he turns out to be not the worst person in the world but also not great Mm. got it yeah He's just, you know, the patriarchy, so. Well, there was that guy who sort of, I guess you could maybe say that he's mansplaining Marianne's painting to her, but it seemed sort of like a pleasant conversation in the gallery where he's like, oh, well, this time it looks like they're saying goodbye to each other. Mm. And then he leaves. <laughs> the very small man at the end. Was like, he's, a, oh. he's a decent guy. Yeah, that's fine. He's pretty cool. Yeah, he's yeah. fine. He's, he's all right. <laughs> and I guess the guy who painted Eloise I was on the film stage podcast we were talking about how did she get this portrait with page 28 on there like what did she have to do oh right yeah yeah what kind of browbeating did she do of this poor (laughs) painter who's like your husband wanted me to paint you okay and she says put this book in there and make sure it's open to page 28 and page 28 is visible right Could you make it look sexually suggestive as well? Thank you. Uh, and- no, you can't see what's on that page. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. That's the fanfic I want to read, right? It's all the stuff within that reality that explains how that came about. Yeah. But I also, I love how all the men she chose to have speaking roles are like <laughs> tiny. And part of that is because, you know, Adele and Noemi are so tall, but they are like a foot shorter than them <laughs> or like when the guy is giving her directions right he's very far away so yeah. he's small in the scene or when he says bonjour the when he comes back he's just sitting at a table he's far just away like, tiny, yeah. Yeah, like hunched yeah. over yeah interesting yep. <laughs> not deliberate at all i'm sure <laughs> no, <I know>. <laughs> could you tell us a little bit about how you feel portrait fits into the rest of siama's body of work one thing we were talking about alex about how all her films feel quite meticulous so it's hard to measure like one being better than the other. But it feels like Portrait is more layered while still being as meticulous. And I think it feels that way because, I mean, obviously naturally on your fourth film you've evolved as a filmmaker and you're more skilled. But also by nature those first three films are coming of age films so they were about characters kind of figuring themselves out. Whereas this film is about adult women who are very intelligent and therefore there's 
this added layer where they're able to kind of like verbalize their feelings and speak about that in an intellectual way and it adds this extra layer of analysis in the text as well as in sort of the structure and the way it's shot and the story. So I think that's one kind of way to look at it. She's kind of mastered the coming of age genre now. She's had her three films and I'm really curious to see where she goes next in sort of telling stories about adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think all of her films are interested in the psychological effects of patriarchy on their characters, mostly women, but then there's also Lore whose gender is ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And I think she's also very interested in sort of this nonverbal communication through dance and movement. I think where Portrait is sort of a step ahead is that it's also engaging with a lot of intellectual ideas in a way that the others were a bit more... Like visceral? Yeah, visceral. That's the right word. Yeah. It's a film that's as much about memory, about history, about how we think about women, about what it means to be an artist. There's so many layers in it. And it's not... I'm not saying that her other films aren't layered, but they're a bit more straightforward mm. to begin with. You know, Tomboy and Girlhood are primarily single protagonist films. You can watch her other films and they might reflect something back about yourself and um, make you think about your own life and the lives of others. And this film will do that and also make you think about, like, history and the way stories are told historically. Mm -hmm. And I really love the way that it engages with history and kind of rewrites history which makes it feel like all the more significant and also the stories we tell ourselves you know like that ongoing discussion about the memory of a love affair and preserving that versus the thing itself especially when you can't have the thing do you kill your uh, lover so that you can see them one last time or mm, no sorry <laughs> <laughs> you live without that goodbye <laughs> You know, and it's interesting, you know, in that final scene, we have Marianne watching Eloise, but she doesn't, I mean, I guess maybe she goes up to see Eloise at the end of the concert, but that's not part of the film, right? <laughs> so she's choosing not to go talk to her because their love affair has ended and she's sort of choosing to preserve it and to just watch her. She's not waving her arms at her like, hey, Eloise, I'm over here. Right, right. Mm, yeah, I mean, there's a, a friend of, of both of ours and our podcast, Fiona Underhill, who wrote this piece about endings in recent films directed by women where we have seen like a, a bunch of films in the last year or so that end with like a character looking at the camera and staring back at us Ooh. and she placed portrait at the end of the piece as like a counterpoint to that where we have this character and there's almost like maybe the first time you watch it you expect her at the very end to look at back at us or you want her to and it's mm -hmm. this incredible tension and then she doesn't and that's kind of the point. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love this idea of the choice that you guys mentioned because it just speaks to their entire experience, right? It's like in a lot of these films, especially we've talked about this before, like with queer films, you don't get a choice in the end. Your lover does die. Mm. Your lover gets murdered or commits suicide. And in this situation, even though it's not happily ever after, they both make this choice together to end it. Mm -hmm. and keep the memory yeah although fortunately we've had quite a few sort of happy endings lately with you know carol and that's true god's own country and even call <laughs> me by your name even though it ends that's true yeah not to obliterate the history of like many yeah. queer characters being killed off just at least things are starting to get better yeah yeah it took a lot of death to get here <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a list of your top 50 films of the decade and portrait made that list it is in there at, is it number eight? eight? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What was the process for deciding to put Portrait on the list? Complicated question. Uh, well, <laughs> we knew Portrait would be on the list. 
I think we probably knew straight away. I think that there is a certain like instinct thing about the top 10. There are certain films that we just knew would be in that 10. And I think that was one of them. Mm. It, it's kind of a list that reflects seventh row rather than my list or Alex's list or like we didn't both write our top 50s and then just smash them together. <laughs> we curated the list through kind of just conversation between the two of us of like what films do we love that we think are great and do we also think represent our interests as a publication. Portrait is all those things. And then, I mean, in that top 10 we had, we chose the number one, the number two, because number one was Alex's favourite film of the decade and she got divs because <laughs> she is the editor-in-chief and then I got number two. So Alex, explain, <laughs> what film did you pick? Oh my god. It's like the running joke that we can't get through a podcast without me talking about Oslo August 31st and its director Joachim Trier. It's a Norwegian film about a recovering heroin addict played by Anders Danielson Lee who I'd mentioned earlier. And it takes place over the course of a day where he is, he's just been in rehab and he comes back to his home in Oslo for a job interview and then to sort of see friends. And effectively at the beginning of the film he almost attempted suicide. Well, I guess he attempted it and then decided, changed his mind. And throughout the film, he's sort of deciding, is it worth it to restart my life? Because he's in his mid-30s and all of his friends are, you know, they're into their careers and they've got families and, and partners and he has to start from scratch. He is depressed and so he can't really see that he has all these things to offer. It's a, it's a fun film. <laughs> it's a fun yeah. Delightful. It's, Lighthearted. Uh, it's comedy. a very happy, yeah, exactly. But yeah, that's one, that's one of my absolute favorite films ever. I find it oddly life affirming, mm. which people find bizarre because, like, why? Why do you identify with a recovering heroin addict when you are none of those things? <laughs> uh, I feel like my pick was more relevant than yours, Alex. Yes, <laughs> my, my pick, which became a, our second favorite film of the decade, is *Certain Women* by Kelly Riker, and Kelly Riker is the subject of our next book. So Portraits of Resistance came out in February. The Trier book is coming. It is coming whenever he makes his next film. I think his film's production was like halted by coronavirus. So yeah. we don't know when that will be. But and Kelly Reichardt has, she had First Cow come out a couple months ago and then it got pulled from cinemas. So it's going to be re-released later this year. But I think that's really interesting conversation with something like Portrait too, because it's like, yes. it's also a retelling of history. And it kind of tells stories from history that weren't in the history books. And I'm kind of trying to write right now about how it's like a film about the people who lost because of capitalism, who aren't in the history books because they lost. And all of her films engage, well, a lot of her films anyway, engage with history in this interesting way. Like Meek's Cutoff is one of her best films and that is a western that reimagines a western from like the perspective of the women who wash the clothes in the background certain women i love it's like a contemporary story about three different women and it, it's definitely relevant to celine sayama's idea that cinema is the only art where you can share someone's loneliness because it's a film all about loneliness and it's about these three short stories with these different women and i always think it's so profound that they share the same film, but the three women at the centre of the film never meet, even though they're all kind of lonely. 
in a similar way. And it's a film with three different stories, so I won't go into them, but also like they're the most mundane things. Like one of the stories is a woman wants to buy sandstone to build a house, and it's about her trying to buy the sandstone. But it's a lot more interesting than that makes it sound. <laughs> I'm just looking at our top 10 films. It's actually, there is sort of some shared sensibilities, I think, that are shared with Portrait. We've also got Rhymes for Young Ghouls, which, I mean, I guess it's sort of a historical retelling, kind of. It's in the 70s. Hmm. It's in the 70s, but it's about the residential schools that Canadian Indigenous people were sent to and the horrors there. And that's something that was basically not in the history books. Most people didn't even know about it until 10 years ago or so. This film was made in 2013 and was kind of my major introduction to really understanding what they were about. I sort of had passing reference to them in my history class in school, but all I knew was they existed and when they closed. Mm -hmm. So that's a film. And it also is a female protagonist dealing with the trauma of that and of how her family has experienced trauma. And then we've got a couple other queer romances. There's Weekend, which is kind of similar to Portrait in the sense that it's, well, both Weekend and Call Me By Your Name, they both are these, you know, limited time romances. Mm -hmm. Weekend is two people talking for a weekend. And Call Me By Your Name probably has more in common with the sort of more sensual elements of Portrait and the, the feelings of touch and the really thoughtful sound. But then Weekend, you know, it shares, it's an Andrew Haig film. He shares a sensibility with Siama, which is, you know, really intense thoughtful blocking and then we we have mouthpiece which we were talking about before and that's a film that's really about women's interior lives and the way that it tells that story is it has two actresses who are playing the same character when they talk to each other it's like her thoughts externalize yeah whoa that's cool that sounds great and they sometimes have contradictory reactions to a, an event and they argue with each other and they fight and it's you know a woman at war with herself so it's a totally different approach, but it is doing that sort of similar thing that Siama does, which is telling stories about women's interior lives. Mm. And then stories we tell. Now, there's a film that's all about memory, and that's Sarah Polly's documentary where she's finding out the story of her biological father. And it's told through interviews with everybody involved with this story, and they all have contradictory takes. So that is itself dealing with memory and our, how we tell our stories in historical record. Mm. Elsewhere in the 50, we have Tomboy. Yeah. So another Flynn Sam film. And to be honest, I mean, now that I've rewatched all the films, I would probably... <laughs> I'd put Girlhood in there as well, because I think that's probably my second favourite of hers as well. I mean... Cause... Is the list set in stone? Could you take another pass? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> like, it's 2020 now, so... We've thought about it. Now that the decade's set. Yeah, because as soon as we locked the list, we were watching new films and then being like, it's needed to be... There's this film called Sammy Blood, which Alex had been telling me to watch for years. <laughs> And the director had her new film at Sundance in January, and so I finally got around to watching it. And then I was like, oh my god, Alex, it's as amazing as you told me it was, <laughs> and why did you make me put it on the list? <laughs> and it's this amazing Swedish film by this director, Amanda Kernel, and you like cannot believe it's her first feature, because it's sort of like this epic, it's just, yeah, it's, it's fantastic, and it should be on the list. I think Godhood should be on the list because, yeah, I hadn't seen it since 2015 and I rewatched it for this book. And it is like this amazing kind of epic of a film. Like, I'd call that film an epic too. So, yeah, I mean, all her films are meticulous, so all of them would belong on a best of the decade list. Cool. So you're going to rewrite it uh -huh. and oh, yeah. include those. Well, we, maybe we'll do a top 100. I remember we thought we were having trouble because oh. we kept having to kill our darlings. So I was like, we could do 100. We just didn't have time. And Orla was like, do you want to go yeah. through this again? This was so painful for the first 50. You want to go through this again? 
And I said, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but we'll probably add to it because there's a lot of other films that we love that we want to spotlight because I think one of the things we really try to do is help people discover films yeah. that they wouldn't have otherwise heard of and then generate a thoughtful conversation around those films, which doesn't exist elsewhere. Mm. I'm glad that you guys locked it at one point because I, it's like, when do you draw the line, right? Because you can probably add forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I mean, we probably should have done a hundred, but we just didn't have time to like write all the little blurbs for each one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do 75. 75 <laughs> sounds like a compromise. Like 66, like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the top 57. Well, and then it sounds more like a listicle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, Alex, Orla, thank you guys so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Where can people find you online? Alex. Oh, okay. <laughs> you always go first because you are editor-in-chief. Got it. Okay. Well, I was trying to be polite here, but okay. You can find me on Twitter at bwestcineast, that's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. You can find us both on Twitter at 7th Row, S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W. You can also check us out on the 7th Row podcast um, on any podcast app where you listen to podcasts. On Instagram at 7th Row, we post like behind the scenes stuff about our books and the organization and interviews, etc., you can find us on our website, seventh-row.com, where you can also pick up our book on Celine Siama, Portraits of Resistance, which is at siamabook.com. You can find me on Twitter at Mango, and then you can find me at all the other places Alex said. <laughs> <laughs> Could you spell your Yeah, your sure. Username? So O-R-L-A-M-A-N-G-O. And I guess for the next few weeks, you can also find us on Sundays on youtube or if you sign up on zoom where we're running our lockdown film school so every week we bring together a pair of filmmakers to discuss their craft so so far we've talked to the costume designers behind the souvenir and first counts certain women that was one session and we had another session with oh we've had so many i'm <laughs> okay wait uh... <laughs> you go ahead yeah we had one with two cinematographers one of whom did mouthpiece and Anne with an e and another one who did the Miseducation of Cameron Post, Madeline's Madeline, Ashley Connor, she's a rising star. And then we had uh, two creative nonfiction filmmakers called Carol Nguyen, and then we had Penny Lane, and we've had Stephen Cohn and Ashley McKenzie, who we talked about before, and it's been really cool because you don't often get to see people in the same field talk to each other, mm-hmm. and a lot of them have told us that they don't get the chance to do that too, so you get some really interesting insights from them. And we basically run these sessions for an hour on Sundays and anyone can sign up for free and you'll be admitted to the Zoom call and you can ask some questions live. It's sort of like a a free film school if you're someone who wants to make films or if you're someone who loves films and wants to learn more about them. And we have, when this episode is out, it should be this Sunday, the 7th, that we have a session on directing with Madeleine Olnek, who made an amazing film called Wild Nights with Emily about Emily Dickinson, which is... Oh, cool. That's on my cue. Yeah, yeah it's great. so good. It's like another retelling of history type of thing. With Molly Shannon, right? Yes, and that was on our uh, Best of the Decade as well. And so cool. it's so good. And then we have her in conversation with Anna Mond, who is a amazing Quebecois filmmaker who's done a whole bunch of films and I'm, I'm just kind of catching up with them now and Alex has told me they've been amazing for years and I very much agree. Well, and she also made a, another portrait of the artist so this is a timely oh, cool. one to tune in for because they both have made films about female artists that are quite unconventional biopics. Yeah. So that's a good pairing with uh, portrait and 
Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and to continue the connections, when this episode is out, we will have just posted a podcast episode this Tuesday about portraits of female artists and how they've been portrayed on screen, which will include portrait. So that's like a big, broad-ranging discussion that I found super fascinating, and it's a good precursor to Sunday's live stream. And then next week, we have two like Canadian legend filmmakers. One is Mina Shum, who made a, a bunch of films with Sandra Oh, like Double Happiness and oh, cool. Meditation yeah. Park. Yeah, and she made a documentary called Ninth Floor. And then we have Philippe Falardeau, is that correct, Alex? Philippe Falardeau. Falardeau, yes, who made My Internship in Canada. And Alex, Canadian. Yeah, he also made Monsieur Lazar, which was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. I think all of them have had at least one film on our Best of the Decade list. Yeah, mm-hmm. So great stuff coming up. Yeah, and then if you want, you can also watch the ones that have happened already on YouTube or on our site because we record all of the sessions. But join us live because it's really great to actually get to interact with them and ask questions live. It's perfect timing. You're not doing anything else during quarantine, so please join them. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Lockdown film school. Perfect concept. All right, great. So as always, if you've got thoughts or ideas about anything that we've discussed today, feel free to post it over on Instagram. We're podcast of Lady on Fire, or you can tweet stuff to us at P-O-A-L-O-F podcast. You can also email us at podcast of a lady on fire at gmail.com. Or you can even leave us a quick voice message at anchor.fm slash P-O-A-L-O-F slash message. And then finally, if you are enjoying the podcast, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find the show. And just one last time, I want to thank you guys for joining us on this Saturday morning, evening, afternoon. (laughs) We're in three different time zones. That's true. We didn't say it. Yeah. 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 So thank you so much for taking the time. It was really great having you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. All right. Talk to you guys next week. Bye.